Hello, my friends. Welcome to the FBCC Chapel Podcast. The Bible says in Psalms how God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, it is our prayer that as you listen, you be refreshed, challenged, and encouraged to be a servant for the Master. And now for today's chapel message. Psalm 139, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. And we'll read just a couple of the verses and then kind of work our way through this passage. I love the book of Psalms, and I would say that if there is one psalm that I could choose that is my favorite, I would say it's probably Psalm 139. And I hope it'll be a help to you. I hope it'll be a comfort, and then also, as it has been to me, a challenge. But let's look at it together. Look at Psalm 139, and notice verse number one. The Bible says this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. Notice verse number four. It says, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Verse 7, notice the, the questions that he presents. He says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I'm going to read verse 9 and 10, and then we'll pray and get right into the message. Notice verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, the opportunity for another semester uh, to uh, worship you, uh, to hear your word, uh, to draw closer to you. And I pray, Lord, uh, even as we were reminded this week from Pastor Wall, uh, I pray that it would be our heart's desire to seek you. I pray that we would have a heart that uh, desires to know you. And as we love you more and more, I pray that we would love one another more and more each and every day. I do pray that you would use this message in each and every individual's hearts, wherever they may be. Uh, maybe it's a time of uh, victory. Maybe it's a time of rejoicing, but I pray that you would use it uh, to speak and work in their hearts for those that maybe are discouraged and uh, maybe feel at times overwhelmed. I pray that you would use this to uh, bring strength, to bring comfort, to bring hope. Uh, for those that maybe are away from you, and, um, Lord, the heart has become indifferent. I pray that you would speak and that you would convict, and I pray that you would lovingly draw them back to yourself. I pray that in everything that you would be seen and that your name would be honored and that you would meet with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we look at Psalm 139, most people uh, conclude that it was written and penned uh, by David. If you were to look at the life of the penman being David, uh, we quickly re realize that as we look at his life, he went through some, some very difficult times. He went through some, uh, what we would consider to be some uh, very uh, just unbelievable uh, storms and trials. In fact, when you look at uh, David being introduced uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, 
um, we see that he is not even a, a candidate uh, to be chosen to be king. He's taking care of the sheep. That was not necessarily uh, a pleasant job. He's the youngest. He seems to be overlooked. Uh, and not just overlooked by his brothers, which maybe you would somewhat halfway expect that, uh, but seemingly he's overlooked by Samuel, and yet God was very aware of where David was at. And I, I think that's a comfort. Uh, there might be times that maybe in your, your parents, maybe at times you feel like, well, they don't necessarily have great expectations for me, uh, or maybe I don't get the opportunities in whatever capacity, and sometimes you can feel like uh, maybe David, and yet it's a comfort to know that no matter where we're at, no matter where God has us serving, no matter where we're at in our Christian journey, uh, God did not overlook David, and God, of course, as we know, would choose David to be the next king of Israel to replace uh, Saul. As we continue to follow the life of David, we notice that he was ridiculed, and oftentimes he was ridiculed because of his zeal. Uh, he was ridiculed because of his, uh, what seemed to be his motives. They questioned his character. Um, and maybe that was an accurate questioning. It seems as if David, when he heard about Goliath and he said, well, uh, the person that slays him, what does he get? And then he goes on to and says, well, is there not a cause? So maybe there's a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a sense where we see David as maybe not always, you know, a, a great example. But then yet at times we see David as a, a, an incredible example of an individual that has dedicated himself to God. But either way, we see a person that, yes, he's not perfect, but he had a heart for God. He had a zeal for God. And yet every time it seemed like he stepped up or tried to do something for the cause of God, there seemed to be people that would question it and people that would ridicule him. Even Pastor Wall mentioned on Tuesday how his own wife later on in his life would uh, ridicule him for his worship. Uh, as a teenager, he was standing up to uh, individuals that uh, grown men wouldn't. Uh, and you think about that, most people suspect he was 16, 17, 18 years old. And he was not, if you will, uh, a person that was of the assumed choice to take on Goliath. In fact, he was probably the, the least uh, of those, and yet he would. He would face a giant. We see that eventually he's anointed, and you think, okay, things are going to take a turn. Uh, he had his problems. He had his giants, so to speak. He had his difficulties. God gave him a victory, and now he's being anointed. Initially, he was overlooked, and, and life is going to be on this great trajectory, and things are going to be kind of uh, roses and puppy dogs from here on out. Well, that's, that's not exactly how it went down. In fact, he would spend probably 10 to maybe 15 years of his life running as a fugitive from his, his boss, uh, from his future father-in-law, and from the king of Israel. Uh, again, probably not how he envisioned his life, his life going. I'm sure at times, as it's reflected in the Psalms, and David writing over 70 of them, I'm sure there's times that David felt forsaken. And in many respects, there is times that he was. Um, he maybe had some type of consolation or comfort, maybe in some of his family. We know Jonathan was a true friend to him. But by and large, he was at times forsaken by others. There was times that he felt betrayed, and he was betrayed. I mean, Saul... Uh, was, again, the, the first king of Israel. And yet he would really take kind of it on himself to pursue after David and to take his life. Uh, he was hated by many. We see, and as it's reflected in the Psalms, that there's times that David did feel discouraged and he felt alone. 
and he felt like maybe even God had forsaken him. And there was times that he felt a sense of, of helplessness. And uh, again, where his heart is just, is just overwhelmed just, just with the, the circumstances and the situations of life. As we look, however, at Psalm chapter 139, we immediately see what the focus of David's psalm would be. Now, again, we don't know exactly when this was written, but you could look at almost any period of David's life and recognize there's always seems to be problems, difficulties, and hardships. But notice where the psalm is focused, and look at the first two words of Psalm 139 and verse 1. He says, O Lord, we see that this psalm is dedicated to praising and lifting up God. David's desire is to draw our attention to the wonder, the majesty, and the greatness of God. And as we look at this psalm, I just want you to consider, uh, to behold, so to speak, who our God is. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we have faced, what we are facing, or, or what we will face, it's very good, instead of looking internally, instead of looking at others that we turn our eyes unto Jesus, that we begin to behold the God that we say that we love and that we serve, our God, our shepherd, our redeemer, our Christ, our savior. And here David, through all of the circumstances, through all the, the difficulties, through all of the hardships and trials of life, he begins to meditate on, he begins to reflect not only on who God is, but if you will, his experience with God. Notice the first thing that we see David testify of or recognize concerning God. The first thing that we notice is David recognizes the power of God in his life. What we notice in this psalm, it's very personal. And one thing that I would encourage you to do is make the scriptures personal. Make God personal personal. I remember, I think it was my freshman or so sophomore year, I remember reading through the Psalms, and I don't remember exactly what Psalm it was, but repeatedly it says, my God and my Lord. And I remember the Holy Spirit asking me as I sat there in that pew listening to the message and reading that particular Psalm and asking me, is, am I truly your God? Is it more than just, well, yes, I kind of grew up with this, and yes, it's a, a God that I appreciate, and yes, it's the God of my parents, but is, is God truly my God? If you do not and I do not make God personal, it will not last. And here we begin to see that this is not just something that is a, an academic exercise for David. This is not just a theological treatise where he's trying to describe and give you a systematic theology on the person of God. All of those things, I suppose, are there. But this is something that is, if you will, experiential. This is something that is relational. This is something that is very personal. And in all of the classes that you have... And all the chapel messages that you will hear this semester, if I could encourage you to do one thing, yes, learn it, know it, be instructed by it, but make it personal. Here David recognizes the power of God in his life. Notice verse number one, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. From the very first verse, David recognizes that God knows everything about him. God has searched him and is aware of every little detail of his life. 
Now, there's people in our world or people that we've met, and especially as you go back to maybe your junior high and high school years, that there's always that one person that thinks they know everything, right? Whereas you say a statement or you give us some little factoid, and it's like, well, actually, and then they want to correct you and tell you exactly what is, you know, the correct fact about whatever area. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's sports-related, science-related, theology-related. It is they are the all-knowing, wise one. And you just need to sit at their feet and just absorb the knowledge and wisdom that they have. Well, as we think about for people, we're limited in our, in our knowledge, right? We are not omniscient. But there is a God that truly does know all things. And he knows all things about us. And here David reflects on that. He says, you have searched me. You know me. And as he continues on, verse 2, he says, thou knowest. He perceives. He sees. He understands. And David recognizes, as we see in verse number 2, that God sees him when he sits down. Verse number two continues on. He sees mine uprising. God knows the things that we might would consider to be trivial, trivial, things that really don't matter, but God's aware of it. Uh, From the time that we woke up, uh, the time that we sat down here, the time that we'll go to bed tonight, in every step of the way, God's very aware of it. God is very involved, if you will. God is not distant. God is not something that's abstract, that's just out there somewhere. David reflects and he says, I'm just kind of overwhelmed with this idea that everything about me, God has searched it. He's very well aware of it. The time that, if you will, I was in the cave, God knew that. The time that I would wake up, uh, God knew that. The time that I faced that giant Goliath, God knew that. He knows the big moments in my life. He knows the mountaintop experiences, but he knows the trivial day-to-day. And could I say this? Oftentimes in our Christian journey, it's just that. It's not always the Goliath type of days. We, we, those are the ones that get preached oftentimes. Those are the ones that we focus on, but there's a lot that takes place before and after that. Before that, David was just taking care of sheep. David was bringing food to his brothers. It was just the trivial things of everyday life. And yet God is absolutely aware of that. He's aware of your Mondays. He's aware of your Fridays. He's aware of those days that seemingly don't have what we might consider big spiritual significance. God knows that. As he continues on in verse 2, he says, Thou understandest my thought afar off. Notice verse 3, thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all of my ways. Verse 4, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. David explains that there is not a thought that we think that God is not aware of. And the very words that, if you will, are on the tip of our tongue, God knows them. He knows the words that are unspoken. At times, people might give an unspoken prayer request. And I think usually it's something that maybe is maybe too sensitive, too personal. You don't want to give, you know, a 20-minute explanation of what's going on. And so you just say, well, it's just an unspoken. And we all have situations like that in our lives. And we don't want to verbalize it. We don't want to vocalize it. And yet there's times that we have thoughts. And there's things that we never would vocalize to maybe a spiritual leader or even to our parents, but yet we're wrestling with it. 
And it's things that we're struggling with. And it's things that maybe bring fear and doubt and overwhelm us in our spiritual life. And David says that God knows all about that. Now that can bring great comfort. But does that not bring unbelievable conviction as well? That the meditations of my heart and my thoughts and my words should be pleasing in the sight of God. As David reflects on God, he can't help but marvel about the incredible power and omniscience of God. In the very same way, God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. He has searched us. He knows our fears. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the sins that we struggle with. He knows the burdens and the secret burdens that we carry. He knows everything that takes place in our life and in our world that maybe is not discernible by your dorm soup. It's not discernible by your parents. A sibling may not be able to recognize it. Your closest of friends may not be able to tell that you're struggling in a particular area. But God in his omniscient and omnipotent power knows all about us. Notice the response of David as he begins to meditate and begins to think on God's power. Notice verse number six. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Now, there's things on social media or just in daily life where somebody sees something or somebody does something on TikTok and people are like, wow, man, my mind is blown. And you're thinking, it's not really that impressive. I think I could do that, right? But this is mind-blowing, this is something that we should, as believers, stand back and think, wow, this is my God? My God is aware of everything in my life from the smallest to the greatest details. God is aware of it all. Why? Because we serve a powerful God. Notice, secondly, David recognizes not only the power of God in his life, but David recognizes the presence of God in his life. Verse number seven, he says, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Notice that's a question, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? David will move from the omniscience of God to focusing on the omnipresence of God. The fact that no matter where David was or where he would be in the future, God would be with him every step of the way. He presents this somewhat rhetorical question and asks, where could I go to get away from the Spirit of God? Where could I flee to to escape the presence of God? Notice some of the hypothetical maybe areas or places that he could go to in order to escape. And I think it's a little bit hyperbolic. He's saying kind of the most extreme place, the most extreme destination. If I went there, could I still escape or could it be possible to escape the presence of God? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. Notice verse 8, if I make my bed in the hell, behold, thou art there. Notice verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning. He's using this poetical language 
again to kind of paint a picture. Notice what he says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. I love going either to Lake Ontario, if you've ever been to the ocean. It just feels as if the ocean or the sea or the lake, it just seemingly goes on forever. And it's a beautiful picture. And here, again, he's kind of imagining and saying, let's just say hypothetically, I could leave the land of Israel and I could go out onto the Mediterranean Sea and just sail on until the farthest reaches of the sea. Wasn't there an individual that attempted to do that? Jonah, right? He was going to flee to Tarshish. Most people believe that that was located in Spain. It seemed like the end of the world during this particular period. And David says, what if I did that? What if I fled from the presence of God to the utmost parts of the sea? Now it makes us kind of beg the question and ask the question, why would anyone desire to flee from the presence of God. The presence of God, and please don't neglect to hear this, the presence of God will either bring you conviction or it will bring you comfort. Either we hear about the presence of God and it motivates us to run to his presence as our heavenly father, or we do what Adam and Eve did, or what Cain did, or what Jonah did. That because there's something in our life that either we don't want to give up, maybe there's a degree of conviction that when I stand in the presence of God, because he does know everything about me, I just want to put a distance between me and him. Could I ask you this morning, what does it bring you? Does it bring us comfort or does it bring us conviction? Sometimes we can disengage our minds Every time the word of God is presented, every time seemingly God wants to speak and to work and to speak to us on a personal level, we have an unbelievable ability to tune everything out. Yes, we'll hear, and if somebody were to ask us, what did Pastor Eli preach on? You could say, well, he preached from the book of Psalms. I mean, we have a head knowledge of that, but a heart knowledge that's saying, God, I really want to know you more. And I want you to speak to me this semester. I want you to convict me. I want, you, I want to be in your presence. Sometimes we have this ability to just depart from that reality. And we don't want God. We want God to be close, but not too close. And here David is presenting this question. Could I go away from the presence of God? Were it possible to flee from the presence of God. Notice as he continues in verse number 10. Even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. What if I did sail across the Mediterranean Sea and somehow, maybe hypothetically, David can make it to Spain or to a country like that far away from Israel, far away from the tabernacle, far away from the people of God? What if he were to flee from the presence? And you think about the physical representation or the symbolic representation that the tabernacle and the temple had. What if I were to go there? Here David reminds himself and reminds us, even there shall thy hand lead me 
and thy right hand shall hold me. There is not a place that we can travel to. There is not a time period in our lives in which God is not with us. In the darkest and the deepest valleys, in the greatest of the mountaintops, God is with us. From our freshman year to our senior year to graduation to ministry, God is with us. That should bring us unbelievable comfort and strength. And it should remind us of the incredible God that we serve. God's presence will never leave, will never forsake we see that in the New Testament. He says, I will never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. If you've, and many of you have taken Greek, it's uh, the idea of that em emphatic negation, right? And the idea is that it's a double negative when usually that's a negative thing in English. In Greek, it's a positive. And the idea is I will never, no, never, ever forsake thee. That's the idea. It'd be weird if we translated it that way, but that's the emphasis. I will never, ever, ever, no, ever forsake thee. God's presence is with you. And think about the things that David has committed spiritually could he put a distance between him and God? Yeah, and we've been there before, right? But it, will it ever come to a place when God says, David, I will never be with you. I will never fellowship with you again. I will never be in relationship with you again. That was never a possibility. There's times that David had to repent, yes. So there's a closeness. But God would never leave David. God would never forsake David, no matter his, quote-unquote, mistakes, no matter his willful transgressions, God would still be with David. We will have times when friends will forsake us. We will have times that people that maybe even in your immediate family put a distance between you and them. But what an incredible reminder that God will never leave us. God will never forsake us. Verse 11 and 12, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness, notice this, verse 12, yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. God's actions and reactions are not determined by the darkness of our situation because it's all the same to him. God's, we might look at and say, this is the, the worst season of my spiritual journey. But for God, it's not as if he's wringing his hands thinking, well, how could, I, how could I figure this out? God's not going and wandering through the darkness of life like sometimes we do. In every situation, God says, sees it with exact and 100% clarity. There's not a confusing or difficult situation for God, why is that? And why is this bringing comfort to the heart of David? It's because of God's presence. Let me show you the next point real quickly. Notice verse number uh, 13. We see that he dwells on the power and the presence of God in his life, but David recognizes the protection and providence of God in his life. Verse 13, for thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. Here David begins to reflect and recognize God's involvement in his life before he was ever even born. The word possessed mentioned in verse 13 speaks about being created or formed. The reins that he speaks about in verse 13 is the inward parts or his inmost being. 
In verse 14, we see that he praises God for his creative power and ability. Verse 15, he says, my substance, that's the skeletal or his frame, if you will, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Notice verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. From the beginning to the end of David's life, God was involved. His creative ability and his personality and his strengths and in his weaknesses, um, those were ordained of God, not sinfully, but is, if you will, is, is just his, his characteristics, his traits, his, his personality. Uh, if you think about from the trials that he faced to the victories that he had, it wasn't as if God was far removed. No, even while he was in his mother's womb, God was very aware in placing people, situations, and creating according to his divine understanding and sovereign ability. It's no mistake. Please don't miss this. It's no mistake that God has you where you're at. It's no mistake that God's created you the way that you are. I remember there was times that in college and before and even now, you can look and think, well, if I had this or if I had that, then I could. God's made you for who you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And David could have looked at it and thought, well, maybe if I was in a different family, maybe if I was in a different era, maybe if, no, what he reflected on was that God had created him and his providential hand had protected him. And he was exactly who God made him to be. I remember hearing this quote when I was in high school and it greatly helped me. But it was, the quote goes like this, God is not limited by what you do not have. God is only, quote unquote, limited if God can be limited. God is only limited by what you will not give. There's times that we might look and think, well, I think this is the path that God wants for me. But I don't know if I can do that. Well, you're right. I haven't quite got it all figured out and I just don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm just beginning to question. I, and what we have to do as believers is just say, God, my lunch isn't very much, but what it is, I'm giving it to you. The staff that I have in my hand, I don't think I can accomplish much through it. And if you remember, when God called Moses, he says, what's in your hand? He says, a rod. The next chapter calls it the rod of God. And as we think about our lives, as we think about our potential, as we think about where we're at, as we think about our future, God will order and lead and guide. It is our responsibility to surrender. Notice the last point will be done. David recognizes the precious thoughts of God in his life. Verse 17, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me. O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. As David continues to reflect on the majesty of God, he begins to explain the way that God thinks about him. He describes them as precious thoughts, something that's valuable, costly, highly esteemed. David begins to reflect on the valuable and weighty thoughts that God has towards him personally. Verse 18, David attempts to illustrate how much God thinks about him and the way in which God thinks about him. And the only illustration, think about this, that he could come up with to try to convey the, uh, the amount of thoughts that God has towards him is by comparing it to the amount of sand that is in the world. 
Now, is he being hyperbolic? Is he trying to exaggerate? Is he using poetical language to kind of prove a point? No matter what it is, we understand that what he's trying to convey is God thinks about us all the time. It's convicting to think about how little I think about him, but yet God is thinking about me constantly. And the times that I'm distant and the times that I'm cold and the times that I'm indifferent and the times that my heart is calloused, God's thinking about me. And the times that I want to do anything and everything but the will of God, God's thinking about me. And the times that I read his word and the times that I don't, God's thinking about me. On the best days of my spiritual journey and on the worst days of my spiritual journey, God's thinking about me. When I'm disappointed in myself, when I feel that others are disappointed in me, God's thinking about me. What an incredible thought to know that right now, God is, yes, thinking about us collectively. God thinks about our church collectively. But God's thinking about you individually. That's incredible. This is the God of the universe. This is the God that spoke the world into existence. As we come through this psalm, we see a very pointed and convicting conclusion. As David has reflected on the power, the presence, the providence, and the precious thoughts of God, he concludes this psalm in verse 23 and 24, and I want you to notice what he says. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The word search means to examine, to investigate, to find out. Why would David ask God this? Was it because God's going to get him? No. It's because when he reflected on the goodness of God, on the greatness of God, on the love of God, on the mercy of God, on the attentiveness of God, on the presence of God, it led him to a place to say, God, look at me. Not the person next to me, not the person in my dorm, but look at me. Could I ask you this morning, could we ask God that? Why would we do that? No one really likes to be looked at. We always have that person in a restaurant or in a store or maybe in a class that you just, you know, you, you turn around and it's just like they're glaring into your soul. I'm like, what is going on, right? No one likes that. It's uncomfortable. And sometimes we might have an accountability partner that says, hey, if you see anything in my life, you know, make sure you tell me. But when they tell us, it's like, hey, hold up. No one's perfect, right? But here he's asking, he's inviting. God, look at me. Why? Is it because of maybe future wrath and judgment? God does chastise, but that wasn't his motivation. He was motivated by the goodness of God, the love of God, the presence of God, the faithfulness of God. Notice the second thing that he requests, verse 24. He says, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Now notice this, not only look, but notice the second thing that he asks, and lead me in the way everlasting. The title of the message is Look and Lead. Is God looking at our lives? 
Is our heart posture in a place that says, God, look at me. Is there anything that maybe is a little bit off? Have I grown calloused and different and cold in my spiritual walk? Am I completely ignoring you instead of running to your presence? I'm fleeing from your presence. God, look at me. Search me. I want you to point out maybe areas where, and and let me say this, that some of this is not always in the negative. It might be that maybe you've not trusted God and he's saying, you can trust me. You can have faith in me. You can rest in me. I love you. But God, look at me. And are we asking God to lead us? So much of my experience when I was a teenager and even at times in college was I knew that God wanted to lead me. But for whatever reason, there was a, 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 a resistance to that. Where will he lead me? What if I don't like where he leads me? What if I get there, I'm thinking, this is a disappointment. And what I had to come to grips with is, it's not just the fact that, well, if you don't follow God, you know your life is going to be a wreck. That could be true, but you might go out and make a lot of money and you know, live a halfway decent life. But why would we miss out on the opportunity for a God that knows everything about us, has actually created us, describes us as fearfully and wonderfully made, is a God that will never leave us nor forsake us? Why would we miss out on the opportunity of that God leading us? God, you order my steps in my life. You take this semester, and I just don't want to do my thing. I want to be led by you. God, when I think about my future vocation or my future ministry, I just don't want this to be something that I just disengage from or I'm not concerned about or I'm trying to make it happen on my own. I want you to lead me. Why? Is it because my life is going to be horrible if I don't? That wasn't David's motivation. His motivation was... If this is the type of God that I have, this is my God, look and God lead me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help it, Lord, in each and every one of our hearts to be something that we live and that daily we're reminded of. Lord, I know there's times that my heart has been maybe indifferent towards you, has been distant from you, and yet you never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, in the times that we willfully transgress your word, times that we fail you, that we stumble, you're still there to forgive us, to show mercy to us, and to heal us, to think about how much you think about us, and yet, Lord, how little at times we think about you. We praise you. We glorify you for who you are. We're frail, we're weak, and Lord, we fail you daily, and yet you are faithful, loving, kind, and merciful. God, I beg you that in each and every person's heart here this morning, myself included, that you would take this truth and help it to be planted deep within our heart, in our soul, in our mind, and that it would motivate us to say, God, would you look at my life, and would you lead my life? Would you bless? Thank you for joining us on today's Chapel Podcast. We hope it was an encouragement and a help to you. If you have any questions or are interested in knowing more about our college, 
feel free to contact us through our website, fbccanada.org, or on any of our social media platforms. And as always, may Christ be lifted up, God be glorified, and servants be trained for the Master's plan. Thank you again for listening. Have a wonderful day.